Welcome to the Behavior Groups Podcast. My name is Kurt Nelson. And I'm Tim Houlihan. We interview interesting people in order to unlock insights into behavioral science and how we can apply them to work and life. We are proud to announce that this Behavioral Groups episode is sponsored by The Lantern Group and Behavioral Alchemy. Woo! Leaders in the application of behavioral sciences working with best-in-class organizations from around the world. And as one of their clients said, or maybe just thought, or maybe we just dreamed it, don't leave for work without them. Okay, well, in this episode, we spoke with Mark Horwich, partner for co-creation, flexibility, openness, and vision at Bain & Company. Mark is an untraditional guy with an untraditional path, most notably marked by a degree from Harvard in visual and environmental studies. Whoa. Yeah. And to his current leadership position at one of the highest regarded management consultancies in the world, Bain. Yeah. And Mark was chosen to develop Bain's new model for leadership. He and his group examined thousands of leadership models, pretty much found them lacking. So they then went ahead and looked at hundreds of different leadership characteristics to hone those down into 32 unique ones that the research found really drove leadership effectiveness. Now, the interesting part about our conversation is that we don't have to be experts in all 32 of those leadership characteristics. We actually, yes, we actually, uh, if we get four of them, we are going to be really inspirational leaders. And even just one or two puts us well above the bar. Um, as As you're listening to this, Please go out and see the model. You can see a link in the show notes, or you can go to www.bainleadership.com backslash leadership dash model backslash. That is, of course, unless you're driving. (laughs) And then you ought not go out and look at this. Thank you. Thank you. We don't want to uh, make anybody dangerous in their driving habits. No. Okay. But with all this effort, um, you know, we asked Mark about the Peter Drucker model of management. We asked him whether it was dead and Mark's comments may surprise you. Um, Another theme in our discussion with Mark was his commitment to authenticity. It's evident in the way he talks about his responsibilities at work and in the way he talked about music. Uh, The Kinks is one of his favorite bands. And by the way, it's a group that's not exactly known about being shy about their disposition. Yeah, well, and neither is Mark. Well, there you go. (laughs) All right. So everybody, please listen up. If you enjoy this, please go out and like it. And uh, it's what all the cool kids are doing, you know, when they're hanging out at their five and dimes. Who writes yeah, this Yeah, we got to get a better writer on Yeah, this I guess stuff. so. Yeah. Anyway, um, please uh, enjoy this great session with Mark Horwich. Mark Horwitz, welcome to Behavioral Grooves. We are excited to have you here. Yeah, welcome. Uh, Thank you. We are we are very excited to have you here. And we're going to start with a little speed round. So uh, un, unsolicited, unprepared, short answers. So tell us. Going up the mountain or coming down? Which do you prefer? Going up. <laughs> Going up. Picasso or Da Vinci? Da Vinci. Corporate hierarchy or no corporate hierarchy? No corporate hierarchy. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Okay. Thank you for that. So uh, the reason be for Picasso over da, Vin- or da Vinci over Picasso, what's uh, just the style or? I love art. I love aesthetics, but I also like 
the outcome of what you apply those to to be useful in one way or another. Okay. Fantastic. Interesting. So you think there's some utility in art? Do you think there's some um, uh, emotional utility that goes along with art? Oh, absolutely. I think, I, I think, first of all, that's, for me anyway, that's the whole point of it is to generate some type of emotional reaction or feelings. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, flipping that around in, in, in the corporate context that I work in, you know, I've always been a big believer that there's, there's many different ways to solve a problem. The more elegant and emotionally appealing your solution is, the more likely it is that people will want to follow you and change what they need to change to, to do that. So That's very interesting. Well, yeah. and in looking at your background and history and preparing for mm -hmm. this, notice that you have your undergraduate degree from Harvard in visual and environmental studies. And I just wanted to help us understand or help our listeners understand what is visual and environmental studies. <laughs> Well, with the caveat that that was many, many years ago, when I was there, at least uh, at the time, that was a uh, an honors only only major that was designed for people who wanted to pursue a career in one way or another in the arts, uh, the visual arts or architecture. And my primary interest was at that was in architecture. And so uh, I thought that would be a great way to get introduced to some of the core skills and thinking that would be helpful. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm reminded of uh, Buckminster Fuller's comment about don't change the man, change the environment. And, uh, and so that, that's kind of what, what came to my mind where the environment is um, deeply influential in, in our behaviors. And, um, and I, I know that I don't think that Fuller was necessarily speaking to all of that, but but it sounds like you might have been keying into that. Absolutely. I, I'm a big believer that your environment uh, has, has, has those effects and can have a huge influence. And uh, a lot of what I've tried to do in, in the situations where I have influence over that is make sure that the environment is, is as conducive to free thinking and creativity and innovation and, and you know, triggering intrinsic motivation as possible. Very cool. So help us, Mark, help us understand your journey then from uh, uh, the architectural focus and the visual and environmental studies at Harvard to mm. uh, being a senior partner at Bain. And what was that journey like? What were, the, what were those inflection points that got you on there? Because it doesn't seem like that's a natural progression. Yeah, uh, in hindsight, I think I've been able to piece that together, but I, I, I have to say along the way, there was quite a bit of making decisions that were in front of me in the best way I could. But the, um, I know this may sound quite mundane, but the, 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 the initial shift in that path was when I was uh, in my late junior year, starting to apply to architecture graduate programs. and in the course of doing my due diligence and talking to a lot of architects, I became highly disillusioned by the amount of airtime they spent complaining about the profession being low paying, uncreative, subject to the whims of developers, et cetera. 
Yeah. And um, so, so I, I uh, in my naive, you know, young, young twenties frame of mind, I said, Oh, well, so maybe that maybe I should actually learn how to be a developer. And if I want to do that, I probably need to learn business. So instead of going to architecture school right away, I changed my mind and said, I'm, I'm going to go to business school and learn real estate development. Then I'll get my architecture degree and then I'll have both and I'll be able to do what I want. Okay. And you end up as a senior partner at Bain and have nothing to do with developing. Ex uh, well, I, I wouldn't say I have nothing to do with developing because uh, it turns out in my career at Bain, I've had one, one of my focus areas turned out to be working with large real estate developers and uh, uh, REITs and people like that. So there okay. was ultimately some, there was some business convergence there, not, not necessarily uh, in, in the same vein, but, but again, the, uh, it, I guess it was my, my practical nature that kicked in because the way I ended up at Bain was um, the, the year I graduated from business school, there was a big real estate depression in the U.S. 1980. Yep. And, um, and all of the developers that used to hire all these bright young MBAs that I could have gone to work for uh, stopped hiring. <laughs> and, and at that point, my choice was, well, I guess I could go back to architecture school, but that's another four years of school. I've already, I'm kind of burned out after, uh, you know, six, uh, 18 straight before that. Yeah. And, um, and actually, just by accident, a friend of mine had started working at Bain uh, which, which at that point was still a very young startup company and said, you know, you really like solving problems that are complicated. You really like creating solutions that are elegant, but also functional. Like that's what Bill Bain talks about all the time is what we're supposed to be doing. So you might want to, you might want to consider working at Bain. You might really like it and they might really like you. So uh, long story short, after several rounds of interviews, I finally did meet Bill Bain, who uh, just passed away, by the way, a couple months ago. And, uh, and that was exactly what he articulated. And you know, it, was a, it was a very funny interview because he started out by asking me kind of what you guys did, like what is, what is visual and environmental studies and how does that have any relationship <laughs> to what we do? Um, and so, so I said, well, I'm not really sure because I've never done what you do, but here's my thinking about it from what I've heard. And uh, he looked at me and put a big smile on his face and said, you know, you're the first person I've interviewed who actually seems to understand what I'm talking about. You know, do you want to work here? And that was that. Wow. Wow. That is cool. Now, we're, we absolutely want to be talking about your leadership model, but I, sure. I have to to go back on this corporate hierarchy or not question, you said yeah. no corporate hierarchy. Can you expand on that a little bit? This sounds interesting. Well, since you gave me a choice of all or nothing, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I certainly don't like excessive corporate hierarchy. And, and frankly, I think hierarchy anymore doesn't, isn't even necessarily what most high functioning companies have, you know, in the traditional sense. Yeah. So, so, you know, if I had to pick one or the other, I had, I had to pick none. Um, I don't think I'm a total believer yet in holacracy and some of the things that are, people are experimenting with, but, right. but I, but I do, I do feel strongly that the, the more you can structure your organization to allow people to spread their wings, you know, follow their, their passions, 
as I said before, you know, do things that actually are consistent with their values and support their fulfillment of intrinsic motivation as much as possible, I think you end up having a lot more interesting outcomes. And, uh, you know, if, if you can somehow get that, get that structure to include in people's minds, you know, some of the business outcomes that, yeah. that you know you need, even if it's really just self-serving, like if, if we don't get to a certain level of profit, we can't afford to do X, which is, and if the X is what people are really excited to do, then, you know, making the outcomes happen that are necessary to do that become part of what is motivating. So it, yeah. hopefully you, you create a virtuous cycle. Yeah, well, you know, Jeff Dunkirk founded uh, Morningstar Foods with this uh, very specific intent to never have a corporate hierarchy, and you know, he he built right. a you know a, a, a huge corporation out of it, a very successful yeah. organization as well. So, um, but it is it is about harnessing that intrinsic motivation, and and I think underneath it all, you got to have really good people. You got to have good processes and and, and good I think processes, yeah. the other interesting piece of this and we're going to get to the you know the I was we met just for our listeners sakes we met um, in, in a conversation around a leadership model that you mm-hmm. have developed and I think the the component here of a hierarchy that the, the leadership model isn't about being a leader from a positional perspective but a leader uh, of people and regardless of your role or model is that I'm not misconstruing this am I no that's totally correct yeah and so I, I think from that perspective you know this is part of you know those organizations as you said that the more that you can get leadership spread throughout the organization the more powerful that that and, and more as you said that business component within it as well as tapping into people's intrinsic and and just having a better work experience is going to be more positive for that. And and with that, Mark, then I'm going to lead into, you know, the questions. So help us understand uh, what you do and then what led you into building and kind of developing this leadership model, the inspirational This particular model, because you, it's, it's not Mm -hmm. the approach. Yeah, so the, the background of this uh, was really came out of our own thinking at the, at, in our partnership at our board level around uh, what, are, what do we think uh, Bain and company should be doing to further our interest in being the best place that, that anybody would want to work, which has always been part of a strong part of our cultural motivation and you know, the, the war for talent, of course, is kind of demanding that you differentiate yourself more and more if you want to be able to attract and retain and, and um, motivate the best people. Mm-hmm. So it's always it's always in our it's always kind of on our radar screen. And uh, if if you've if you look at Glassdoor and many of the other best places to work kinds of ratings, we are rated incredibly high, uh, which which is amazing when we're up against you know sort of places that people would think of as more cool, like yeah. Google and Facebook and, and others. So we're very, very proud of that. It's really important. And when we, uh, a, f- a few years ago, when we were doing our review of this and kind of collecting the feedback from the firm about uh, what could we do to continue to up our game, uh, we, we were hearing 
from lots of different directions, interestingly, not just partners, but we were hearing people say things like, um, uh, I don't, I'm not as clear as I used to be on what I'm supposed to be sort of learning how to do if I want to sustain this type of, you know, the type of career and the type of intensity that, that our industry demands. Uh, we heard things like, I don't, uh, I'm starting to wonder if the things that motivated me, and this was from the more senior people, if the things that motivated me to want to join this company and make it great, they don't seem to be resonating as well with uh, all the people that I'm mentoring and, and trying to, to help. And I, I don't really understand that. Um, from more junior people, we were getting not unlike many other companies, people coming saying, well, you know, don't, don't tell me what I need to do to be successful at the company. Let's start with what am I going to gain by working here? Oh. Uh, what, what are you going to teach me that is, is useful? And, you know, Bain, Bain's um, premise or, or promise to people really was you come to Bain and you'll learn how to be the best, you know, general manager out there you'll build your general manager skills and whether you stay at Bain or go on to something else in your career, those will be incredibly valuable. And that, that was just not, did not seem to be sufficient, a sufficiently exciting answer for a lot of our more junior people. And so we started to have this question mark around, well, are we, you know, what, what's, what's the underlying, what's really the underlying question they're answering. Mm -hmm. And, um, and what should we do about it? Or is there, is there something we can do about it? Now, the way I got this assignment goes all the way back to what I just said around being an architect or not and liking un, unstructured problems and how to, how to figure out what they are and what to do about it. So when this came up as one of the strategic things that we needed to sort of look into and as one of the senior partners in the firm, I got all these people kind of like, like uh, pigeons on a, you know, on, on a fence, all of a sudden everybody's head turned to me and said, this sounds like something you'd really like to do, right? <laughs> I love because, that. because we don't have any idea what anybody's talking about. So, you know, were you willing to kind of take this on? And frankly, I was super excited about it because um, I, I'm one of the very few partners at Bain to have been lucky enough to also have served as a CEO in a couple of companies, you know, when I was outside of Bain in the middle of my partner career yeah and so you know so Bain is a unique place where people come there and they're super highly motivated like we you know the the when, when you talk about the one percent it's like we're all we are all spoiled by having the one percent working at Bain and and so it was valuable for me when I was outside of Bain to be working in a, in a couple of companies where you know you had a bell curve of capability like you sort of dealing with the more the reality of of uh of the workforce and you know having myself struggled at that point with how do i what skills did i not learn all the way through my getting to partner at bain that all of a sudden seemed seemed to be needed yeah and and uh so long story short you know when when my conclusion or my hypothesis even then was i think what people are really talking about is what else do we need to teach them besides how to do this job that is going to help them be able to create, maintain, nourish, 
you know, more health, healthier and more uh, exciting relationships. Because at the end of the day, working together, leading people, you know, sort of get, getting, uh, motivating groups to do, do things, in my opinion, is, is really saying, how do you make those, to, how do you make those into great relationships? Otherwise, nothing happens. So I, I, I thought there was something there around what are, how do you actually think about, articulate and teach relationship skills, especially to people who are mostly, you know, left brain analytic, you know, brains on a stick kind of um, people, <laughs> uh, that, that, or at least that's the, that's the assumption, right? The outside, outside in assumption. Yeah. And, yeah, certainly, and certainly, and certainly at that point at Bain, when we looked at the, the training, development, formal and informal mentoring, and all the tools that we had around that, lo and behold, if you sort of thought about how much of that was oriented towards teaching technical skill, what, 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 in, what in my model now we call performance-related skills, uh -huh. and, how much, and how much was around relationships, including with yourself, uh, which we now call the inspirational skills and personal capacity. And I'll, I'll come back and explain. There, there's basically, we talk about three major components of leadership. You know, what, what was the weighting between those things? And it was like 99% performance, 1% everything else. In, in, and, and that was the big light bulb for me, which is, oh, okay, well, no wonder we have people starting to feel uncomfortable, both the givers and the receivers you want to think about it that way of leadership are feeling like they're not getting everything that they could. And that's because we're really over indexed on only one of three categories of things that matter. Well, and I think and so, that, so we should do something about that. Yeah. And I think that that isn't, you're, you're not unique in that. I think in lots of the organizations that, uh, you know, that I've worked with in the past, they tend to over index on those, Hard skills, because the soft skills, a either they, they they seem soft, or they're just so mushy and unknown mm -hmm. that it's really hard for for particularly I think senior leadership to get their hands grasped around it and saying so what is the benefit of teaching some of these more relationship skills uh, outside unless it's a you know how do you sell to this type of person but more of the general so this this came up in a conversation we had with uh, Todd Fonseca, the vice president of clinical research at Medtronic, and and he works a lot on leadership development and and tries to emphasize tries to bring new emphasis to these soft skills to these relationship skills yeah. to, to because um, they are underplayed yeah and and undervalued. Um, Mark, so could you walk us through the uh, the inspirational leader model? That, that you've got. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Absolutely. So to your point about the, the weighting, you know, we're, we very strongly would agree with you and the other gentleman that you mentioned that uh, the time has come, I think, and, and it increasingly so, where the, the basic paradigm of how you think about leadership needs to kind of evolve to its next stage. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if, if I'm sure if you're, you're aware of the history of I mean, formal management really just started around right after World War II, the organization man and so forth. So it actually hasn't even been through that many cycles, but, but, uh, but we're starting to see more and more companies like, like you mentioned, Medtronic and others 
starting to realize that if they don't, if they don't actually take on this rebalancing, that they're going to be left behind, and that's it's going to be a problem. So I'm excited that you know we're we're maybe a little bit out ahead of others in trying to figure out a more systematic way to address this. The so the model itself starts with what I mentioned earlier that we we want people to understand that if you're thinking about yourself in your capacity as a leader and again by leader we don't mean hierarchical leader we mean influencer motivator you know whatever other adjectives you want to use um, the that if you want to if you really want to do that and you want to develop yourself to your fullest you still have to care about your performance skills uh, the, the three categories you still have yep. to care about those because you know, it, it, at least in an organizational context, and even if it's a nonprofit or a social mission that you want to do, if you don't get outcomes that are relevant and sustainable, you know, you're kind of dead in the water. So, you know, learning, paying attention to and learning how to do the best you can to develop the, the skills required regard, at whatever point in your career, whatever the role is, those don't go away. But just getting great at those is nowhere near sufficient to, to really reach full potential as a leader. And that, that frankly, in our environment, that was, that's a big aha for many of our people who think that, who, especially the, the more old school, who think that everybody is excited to, to match your level of formal success. <laughs> you know, that that's a huge motivator. And it actually, you know, it never really has been, but... It's it's also you know been typical in many certainly Western corporations that you know that's people expect that that is motivating to the next wave and it sort of self perpetuates and that's just broken down I think is the Peter Drucker model of management dead? Well, it depends which parts of his model. I, I think the hierarchical you know sort of his components of hierarchical leadership are i don't know that they're dead i but i think there's many many more models of of uh of how organizations operate than that anymore i mean that may be becoming the minority model yeah. but it's top down and very hierarchical and and where roles are quite you know relatively fixed and so forth you know you, you you're aware of all the trend toward adopting agile approaches to lots of different things bain is is one of those uh entities but you know the, the more you move towards um cross-functional or even cross-company activity as as what's actually needed to get things done uh, the more you move towards almost being in co-creative process with your customers instead of you know we're going to just make what we want and then convince you to buy it <laughs> yeah. uh, the, the more you the more you have to do those things to actually be successful and be um, effective the 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 less a top down formal hierarchy where the you know the the controls get handed down from the top and everybody has their little bots um, those just break down right. now drucker you know you, you you're probably more versed in drucker than I am given your backgrounds, but he also did spend a lot of time talking about the interpersonal side of things, but that's not generally what he's. Yeah, that's, yeah he, he certainly did care. Um, he, he knew that. Yes. People, <laughs> ultimately, it's people and their behaviors that 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 are what executes the vision of the organization. 
It's not just all in our Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So, so, so we, so, so we tell you back to the model. So, so the three parts of the model, we tell people performance is kind of a, uh, is necessary, but not sufficient. Don't, don't forget about doing those. And, you, you know, uh, in a way it's a little bit of a dig at the, the, the idea that you can just be a fantastic socially adept, you know, glad hander and somehow that's a substitute for, for performance skills. Um, we certainly don't believe that at Bain, but, but what we what we what we then say is there's two other things that two other categories that you should be paying attention to, and our assertion is that those are not actually sort of icing on the cake, but are are more and more really part of the core of what you have to be doing, in some sort of reasonable balance with performance if you really want to want to succeed. So the second bucket we call the inspirational skills. Um, that's you know some people would call that the soft skills, et cetera. Um, but our whole approach was to see if we could take a well-structured, analytically sound, sort of uh, um, more comprehensive approach to how we would define, uh, measure, explain, teach, uh, create dialogue around those soft skills so that it didn't become so mushy and kind of qualitative, which was our, our feeling as we you know, looked at our own, what we were doing up to that point, and, you know, looking around the world of leadership development uh, methodologies, we felt that they were, they didn't have the analytical rigor that, you know, we would like, especially given that we're in the business of being analytically rigorous. Yes. So, um, so, and I'll explain how we came up with that in a minute, if you want, how we, how we de define those skills and why that, we think that's actually quite unique, at least at this point in some of the leadership, uh, other leadership models we've seen. And then the third category we call personal capacity. And we, de we describe that as the set of physiological, psychological, and practical skills that you need to learn and adopt that will allow you to have the resilience and stamina to sustain high performance on those other two, across those other two categories. You can look at that another way in, in a very broad sense and say, this is the stuff that you actually need to need to have in your in your skill building mix as well in order to have true a truly sustainable career. If you define sustainability as not just you know sort of being able to uh, fall over the goal line at some point with the some <laughs> amount of money in your account, but but also, you know, are you enjoying yourself along the way? Are you getting energy out of what you're doing? Are you actually, you know, maintaining your, your, both your mental and physical health so that the, you know, the work that you're doing isn't literally sucking the life out of you? Um, <laughs> are you connecting what you're doing with your purpose and all these kinds of other things that, again, as you guys said, these aren't new ideas. Like they've, they've been out there in the world, of course, for a long time. But what, what we think what we think was very different about what we did is we we have we have put a stake in the ground saying those need to move from the world of optional, nice to have kind of you know um, if if it strikes you as being interesting, go for it kinds of things. You know maybe maybe you're you're interested in that maybe you're not. We're trying to move that we're trying to move from that to say if you actually care about being. A, uh, an effective leader, you must spend some time on all of these things. They're not, they're, it's not really optional.
So Mark, tell us a little bit, you mentioned the analytical process of getting to that, the inspirational leadership skill. Yes. Tell us, tell us about that process that you use, because I think uh, from our discussions before, it is a little bit unique from, I think, many of the other leadership models out there that have a more qualitative bent to it. This is a very quali yeah. quantitative, analytical approach. Yes. So let's understand what you guys did. Yes. So if you, if you start out with the, if you ask anybody the question of, uh, think of somebody that inspired you and what was it about them that made you feel inspired and without, yeah. you don't have to define what that feels like. It's kind of like love. However, you're thinking about it and you ask them what it was. I mean, in, you take any group of people and spend about a minute and you could end up with a list of 50 or 60, you know, sort of behavior, behaviors or attributes, right? They're very humble. They have a low ego. They listen really well. They care about me, you know, on and on. Um, and when you when you scour as much as possible the the research and thinking that's been done, which I would argue goes back pretty much to the first philosophers yeah. about about you know well what are the, what are the elements of good relationships? What drives you know meaningful connection with people, etc separate from the business context, just in general, there's a zillion ideas out there, right? And, and people have come at it from a philosophical bent, from a behavioral science bent, from a sociology bent, from a religious or spiritual. So it's a, it's, it almost seems like it's so open-ended and unstructured, as you said, and that it, that it does feel squishy. And, you know, and I think that's why uh, as we began to search for, is there a, ha, has anybody done the analytics that, we would we thought were logical to try and and decide or or determine well is there some reasonable set of those things that if you were to put a stake in the ground around that would would be big enough to capture what 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 is true about human relationships which is that they're complex and they can't really be boiled down to sort of an optimization formula like maximizing the number of chickens that come off of your production line. Yeah. Um, so, so is there a way to, to figure out how to bound that in a broad enough way that you, you have the richness you need to accommodate what, what's real for every, all of us as we think about this? And that is that there's lots of different ways that people are and feel inspired, but yet um, you know, narrow enough that you could think about building a training and development and feedback system to help support people learning and building those skills that would be just as robust as we and most other companies have around teaching people what they have to do to do their performance skills. Yeah. Um, so that was the question that we asked ourselves and we scoured around hoping that someone had already figured that out and yeah. that we could adopt, we could adopt their, their approach. And, um, honestly, what what we found, uh, I can't say that I've that I was able to find every single piece of writing that may have ever been done on this, but I went through a lot of them, and and there were two things that struck me as being missing from a lot of the other approaches um, to leadership development or or you know this this topic out there. The first, ironically, was um, almost nobody. If you if you read a lot of these books about leadership. Almost nobody actually 
has adopted a customer-driven perspective hmm. and or research methodology around these skills. So, you know, and that was super antithetical to, to me as a Bain person because one of the major things we work with lots of our clients on is how do you actually really understand what the customer needs and how do you know what the voice of the customer is and how do you adjust your value proposition to meet those needs? Like that's kind of business 101. And yet when you read a lot of the, the leadership books and, and even a lot of the academic approaches, they seem to always just zero in on the leader and try and, you know, through mostly, I think, uh, qualitative judgment, discern what they think that leader or group of leaders is doing that is seemingly having the inspirational effect. And most of the time they're zeroing in on people who by definition have already risen to where they are influential over many, 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 many people. Yeah. So they're not, they're not dealing with the ordinary experience that most of us have, which is, I don't know about you, but I've never met John Kennedy, Nelson Mandela, Mother Teresa, you know, Steve Jobs, name any of the people in these books. I've never met them. And yet I feel like I've been inspired by a lot of people. Yes. Yeah. Um, so, so, so they tend to pick a, I think a non-representative sample. They focus on the leaders and then they kind of qualitatively judge what the factors are that are present. And then, so, so they don't, I, I, I've, I've only seen literally a couple of, of uh, leadership researchers who seem to have spent any time going to, for lack of a better word, the followers or the recipients or the customers and trying to discern what is it that's driving their reaction. Um, so that was one, one missing thing is this customer perspective. And then the other missing thing was that um, the, the choice, if you picked anybody's solution, so you know, go, on, go on Amazon and type in you know, leadership books, and many, many, many of them have a title that sounds like the blank lessons in leadership of blank. Yeah. Right? And so how did they pick the, the blank? Like, and, and, it was, <laughs> uh, and it was interesting because in most cases it seemed literally random, you know, like, well, this is all they could find in the set of people they were looking for commonalities among, or these were the ones that just sounded really pithy, or, you know, to be a little bit more cynical, you know, the editors of these publishers said, like, you can't have more than seven because that resonates, you know, in a title of a book or whatever, whatever the, whatever the reason is, it didn't seem particularly scientific. Let's just put it that way. So, um, so, so what we said was, okay, if we're going to, if we're going to be able to approach this with the rigor that we are talking about and trying to meet those two objectives I mentioned of broad enough to be useful, narrow enough to be uh, doable or supportable, um, we have to come up with a customer-driven way to figure this out. So we created a, we took a lot of these ideas and, and you know, a lot of the, the words, a lot, many of the words are synonymous or related. So we spent a lot of time trying to whittle down a really broad set of ideas to a manageable number and then we did a giant uh, conjoint study, which for any of the listeners that know marketing or have done especially consumer product yeah. design, um, you, you know, it's, you take all these attributes and you get people to rank and rate them against each other. 
and and our and our goal was uh, to see if to see um, how many of these passed uh, the the one arbitrary test I would say in our whole methodology, which was we said if if any of these are um, deemed to be relevant in the eyes of our customers and, and our original conjoint study was of course done on the Bain population at all levels, okay. including administrative and consulting and everything else. So we had, uh, it was interesting, we, we fielded the survey, we had an employee population at the time of about 6,000. Our normal response rate to an internal survey is, you know, 600 people, 10%, <laughs> everybody's excited. Okay. We had, we actually had almost 4,000 people took the time to fill this out and it took about 40 minutes. It was a long survey. Mm. So right, right there, we knew we were onto something that people cared a lot about wanting to, wanting us to uh, address. Anyway, so we, 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 we did this conjoint and our rule was um, any, any of these attributes that move the needle for someone on saying that they feel inspired when they're working with another Bain person. Uh, if 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 20% of the population says that that factor is, you know, matters, uh, then we want to include it in our model. Okay. So so you, you know, 20% just out of curiosity, how did that you, that well that was the as I said that was probably that probably is the kind of most random, I would say yeah. single most random. There, there were two there were there were two judgment calls in creating this. One was you know, we, we started with a, a gigantic list of, of uh, attributes and ideas and behaviors that we thought affected relationships gathered from all these different sources. And we had to make some judgments about what went into the survey. So we made a pretty big cut that was arguably judgmental. I had a panel of people and we spent several, you know, many, many weeks, uh, days at a time, literally staring at these things and trying to decide if they were uh, the same as something else and could be merged and so forth before we created the survey. And, um, and, and, the, and, so, and that was one choice. The second choice of 20% uh, was honestly based on the Bain, uh, the way we do business. So Bain works in project teams and our typical project team would, be, would have a, a leader, either a manager or a partner. And, something like five to six people on the team. So, so our logic was, you know, if, if you think about the, if you think about creating a broad inspirational impact, you know, for any, any, if any of us are trying to create an inspirational impact, it's, a, it's essentially a probability game, right? It's what's the probability that if I'm involved in relationship with this group of people that, I am somehow going to be showing up and have what they need, right? To feel inspired, and so we basically said, well, you know, we want to at least we want to, we hope that there's at least one thing that's inspirational to at least to every, each person on a team. So that would mean one out of five. Oh, yeah. so that's so that's how we pick twenty percent. Um, that makes sense. And uh, you know, it's interesting because since we've been doing this, and we now have you know, 15,000 or so of the, the surveyed vehicle that then now asks people explicitly about the set that we've chosen. And we, we ended up choosing from that process 32 elements. We call those the inspirational skill set is 32 different attributes and behaviors. And, uh, 
and now we routinely in the survey and we update and we just redo the analytics frequently we ask people you know how important is this particular item in you feeling inspired so we're constantly we're, we're constantly trying to make sure that all of these the 32 that we picked you know are still passing the 20 percent rule and you know we've we've that's been very very stable from the beginning of this it's four we're four years into this now so so we're pretty we're pretty pretty sure we've picked a, a good enough um, group of attributes now obviously that doesn't mean that there's something that might be inspirational to a given person about another person that isn't on our list but if you think about what we're trying to do as something that can be driven as a, a formal leadership model, you know, leadership competency model. Yeah. If you want to think about it that way across, you know, a large organization, you know, you're just, there's just no way you're going to get every possible permutation that's, you know, might be relevant. So that's how we picked the uh, 32. So we still think that's quite unique out there. We haven't seen, I have yet still to see research, broad, broad research that honestly tries to treat people as the customers of, their leaders in general, and certainly with respect specifically to this aspect of inspiration, I, I haven't seen that either. So we think it's pretty unique. So, so Mark, you have the 32 characteristics and mm -hmm. probably can't get into those, but I know that you have segmented those into kind of bigger buckets that, of, of, of areas. Can you help us understand how, what, what you've done with that and then the, the whole concept of centeredness. I know that was a big yes. piece when we talked last time. Yes, so the first um, really, in, in my mind, actually the most exciting analytic finding uh, of, the, of the whole process was uh, once we had the 32 elements chosen, um, then the, the next logical question was, well, how do you, how do you think about um, the impact of those elements on driving inspiration? Like, is there, what's the connection between those? And the biggest concern I would say that I had and many others after we put this list forward is, oh my God, you know, we can't even keep up with learning the five things that we have to learn to survive in our job. Yeah. Now you're telling me that there's 32 other things and these are like really, <laughs> kind of soft and I'm supposed to learn how to all of those and how to be great at all of those and you know, forget it. I mean, this just is a non-starter. And, um, and our hypothesis again was, well, I don't think that's actually true. That, that's the full, that's the, call it the collective set of things that matter to a collective group of people. That doesn't necessarily mean that the, the, um, the impact of any single individual is for an in individual to have impact, that they need to actually be doing all 32 of those things at a high level all the time. Mm -hmm. Because that also is, is inconsistent with our own personal experience, both as a giver and receiver, right? Nobody's perfect and nobody does all that stuff all the time, you know, anyway. Nobody does all, if you, you know, I, don't, I don't know a person that can do all 32 of those things. At least I've never met them. And, you know, even some of the major towering figures in history of inspiration, you know, it's been well documented that some of them are, are incredibly bad at some of those things, too. <laughs> oh, yeah. um, right? But but yet still highly inspirational. So so we had this hypothesis that the answer wasn't that you had to know all of them, but we really didn't know uh, 
with, with any analytics, well, how do these really relate to being inspirational? So, so what we did is we created uh, uh, this idea of what we did know was that, uh, or at least we felt pretty strongly, and lots of people have documented this. I know you've, you've probably documented this in your work, that um, what does stand out for people about other people is when they have a, a handful of things that are really spiky, as opposed to, you know, they're just kind of bland and they just fade into the woodwork. That that's, that's kind of a first, that, that, that's kind of a precondition to really having a, an inspirational impact on someone else is that there's something about you that stands out for them. So we had this idea that, you know, that, that, that if we could calibrate in some way this idea of spikiness and then try and see how does that, how do those spikes then correlate to the customer's perception of inspiration, maybe we could figure out, you know, what, what is the, I guess, optimal you want to call it that you know what's the bogey within those 32 things what's a realistic bogey if you really want to have a high impact that people should shoot for huh. in learning and trying to develop those so we created a scale that uh, we created a 360 survey we created a scale and I won't go into all the details behind that but but what we ended up doing was saying we will we will give you credit for being for having a dis, we call it distinguishing strength i.e. a spike on yeah. these 32 elements if in the 360 feedback that comes back from our survey across all of your respondents if you are essentially viewed as being in the top decile in their experience relative to other people they've experienced so and, and, so, so so we built that survey to calculate that essentially and, and, and what, what about those folks who do not have those spikes? What if there, there are, are no uh, material spikes in their, in their 360 profile? Well, this is what's interesting. So the first, the, the first big insight out of this is if you, if you start with the correlation of distinguishing strengths to inspiration and inspiration measured by the followers, when I, the way the survey works, when working with Mark, I feel inspired, you know, zero for uninspired, five to super inspired. Right. Um, if, you, if you correlate the number of those distinguishing strengths in any given person's profile with the percentage of people that say they felt inspired, if you have zero of those distinguishing strengths, the, num the, the percentage of people that say they're inspired is still about a third. Okay. And, and there's a nuance to that that I can explain, but, but the bottom line is that what that points out, of course, is two different things. One, that, you know, this is not, there is, this is not an optimization game. It's, you know, it's a probability game. And so that 33% in my mind partially represents the fact that, you know, you can't account with any given subset of factors for a hundred percent of the possible, you know, drivers of inspiration and right. so in a way i feel I, in a way i feel heartened that you know even with none you, you you're still kind of batting 300 um the other though is that we're looking at a we have a bit of a skewed sample because the 360 survey data that we have really can only consists of at bain the people that are already have already reached the manager role okay so they've kind of gotten to the point of being in charge of a bunch of other people 
And likewise, we've, we've run probably five or 600 of these now with non-Bain organizations. But again, it's always been people that have already, you know, gotten to some type of formal leadership role. And mm -hmm. so you have to figure that they're doing at least some stuff right, you know, to, right. to be, to, I mean, if, if, to, to, have, to, to have gotten there. But so, so that's sort of one finding, but the more exciting part of it was as soon as you get even one of these in your profile, that percentage rose to 68%. And as, and, if, and as soon as you get to four, it was over 90, running 91% the last time we calibrated it. So, and then it, and it actually keeps going up. You know, we have some people in our database that according to the survey, you know, might, be a, might have spikes on 15 of these things. But it's very, you know, the, the, it, it tails off pretty quick. So the curve rises very quickly, which also, I think, if you think about it, it is intuitively obvious after the fact. It rises very quickly in terms of the impact when you can add just a few into your, port, into your portfolio. And then, it, you know, it can keep going up, but, the, but it's a much shallower curve. So, so in that per, um, component, Mark, what I'm hearing you say, so if I have a distinguishing characteristic or a spike, even one. So for instance, I think some of your inspiration, you know, there's a, a humility one. So if people, right. wow, Kurt is really, uh, has, has a big thing of humility, that right. my, my likelihood of being inspirational just significantly goes up. And if I have two, three, four of those, then that's so, for instance, you know, some of these others are focus and vision and, shared ambition and unselfishness. So some of those components. And so if people say, well, Kurt really has these distinguishing characteristics and four of them, just having four of those, I'm, I'm much more likely to be viewed as an inspirational leader than if I had zero or even just one. This is hypothetical, right, Kurt? Well, yeah, I mean. <laughs> yes, that's, a, that's exactly right. That's what the data says. And the other nuance, uh, which was also quite exciting in my mind, is um, the, the, the next level down in our rating scale we call potential distinguishing strengths. Okay. And, and we made the cutoff for that, the next two deciles. So, you know, if you're kind of in the top 30%, rated on those we call those potential distinguishing strengths because the the follow-on part of our program which i know you would be intimately familiar with with behavior change and so forth is to get people into the mindset of identifying and building on authentic strengths as a way to create those spikes mm -hmm. not you know not trying to use their left brain and sort of optimize, well, which of these 32 do I think is gonna give me the most ROI? And even if it's completely alien to me as a human being, I'm gonna somehow <laughs> you know, yeah. get into the top decile. Like, so, so, um, but so what was, what's, what's incredibly exciting to me about this, you know, in addition to that first finding is that when you look across, you know, thousands of respondents now on this survey, there's virtually nobody that doesn't end up with several of these that are already in that potential distinguishing strength category. That's cool. Which, which, you know, in any other world other than Bain, if he's told somebody, you've got like five things that are already in the top quartile, they just aren't in the top decile, they would think that's awesome. But, you know, <laughs> Bain people, for Bain, for high achievers, like they're like, oh my God, I failed. <laughs> oh, oh man! So, 
but 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 the exciting part for me obviously is what this brings out very explicitly for virtually everybody is you know you actually you're actually an awesome person like you have a bunch of good stuff going on that you might you, you know in many cases i find they aren't even aware of or willing to give themselves credit for in, in, a, in a strange way and um and so you know it's it's very 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 rare and again you know we have a little bit of a skewed sample because we already have people that if they really had if all if they really had glaring weaknesses across all of these things they probably would not have ever even made it right as far as made it so it's you know it's a little bit of a skewed sample but but you know for for people that are managing other people at least i would say it's virtually it's virtually 100 percent certain that you have way more going for you than you have uh have thought about um you and and therefore you've got an amazing a pile of raw material to build your spikes out of all you actually have to do is get comfortable uh with with that being who you really are and then you know invest in the ways that we try and teach people some of which we're trying to use some tips and tricks from your behavioral science world uh you know to get people to change their behavior to actually build these things uh, stronger and stronger to the point where at some point they will pop up as uh, as distinguished well, and that, so that leads me to my next question, which is, you know, we, this is a podcast that, you know, focuses in on behavioral science. So what, what are those behavioral science um, elements that you either integrated in when you were thinking about the model or I think more, more, I think impactful for me is, is thinking about what you just were talking about. So how do you then apply some of those behavioral science principles to, you know, get people from that potential up into that distinguished component. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm afraid to answer this question since you guys are experts <laughs> and, and I'm not, but, but, um, so, you know, if feel free to uh, teach me if I've misinterpreted some of these, but there's, there's two or three different things that we're, we're at least trying to incorporate into our, um, our program. Okay. Um, the the first as i mentioned at the very beginning which which is probably the most intriguing part to me just given my personal mindset is this idea of that you know th there's lots of acknowledgement that you know real uh, i guess you would say real real excitement um real internal energy um real positive feeling fulfillment all of those kinds of things particularly in a work environment are are really th that at the end of the day they really need to be driven by intrinsic motivation to be to be kind of real and powerful okay okay and that um at least this is how i interpreted a lot of the stuff i read and that certainly resonated with me because you know I, I let when people say it when, when some of my colleagues say to me well you know but really we should just call it motivation you know we should call inspiration should have called it motivational leadership and i'm like well, that makes no sense to me because if i told you that if you didn't go to this client meeting i'm going to kill your your dog you'd probably be motivated to go yeah yeah <laughs> that's not what we're talking about right and he's like oh yeah i never thought of that so that's <laughs> So I've, I've always been very intrigued by this idea of intrinsic motivation. And as 
at least as I interpreted a lot of the research, the the conundrum is that there's quite a bit of there's quite a bit of research that shows that when it's high, good things happen. Mm-hmm. And there's and I think there seems to be consensus among the experts that it's way more powerful, obviously, than external motivation. But but there I I did not see I did not find a a uh, a really long list of here's the successful interventions one can use that have been proven to actually move the needle on intrinsic motivation. Yeah, yeah, stimulating Um, intrinsic motivation is uh, terribly hard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So so my my takeaway from that was, okay, there's no silver bullet, that's obvious. Mm -hmm. Um, So what we we need to try and do is, I guess, Philosophically, what we want to try and do is create a um, create as rich a if you want to think about it create as rich a soil mix as we can, so that these little seedlings that we have here can um, you know be planted there and they will pull whichever nutrients you know are most useful to them into inside and hopefully that will you know that that will be the way that they end up connecting the dots between what what's intrinsically motivating to them and what we can hopefully offer to support you know the those things getting more and more used or more present and so now we, we so, see the hook back to visual and environmental studies because you're talking, you're talking about environment now right right exactly and uh and so so our goal with the program and i i, I honestly i don't i don't i don't think we've we've got the perfect solution and we're always trying to learn and you know add and try new things that we hear about so i would love for you you guys to make me aware of what's new and interesting that we might maybe can weave in but but philosophically our approach to this is we tell people look the inspirational leadership program it's not a training program in the sense that you're used to thinking about it you know i'm going to sit down they're going to show me some powerpoints i'm really smart so i'm going to figure this out in about an hour and then, you know, then I, I know I can do it. We're trying to say to people, you know, this is kind of a journey that starts and probably doesn't ever really end. We call our onboarding sessions literally welcome sessions because we're welcoming you to, you know, the, the, the world of thinking and trying to be more of these things as opposed to IL training. Mm-hmm. Whenever anybody says I'm going to an IL training, I say, well, then you probably shouldn't come to ours because that's, <laughs> not, that's not what we do. But um, so, so we, we, we've tried to get across that this is really about you as a person. Yeah. You know, we, we message that as aggressively as we can, trying to get to the level where hopefully we've somehow touched on their intrinsic motivation things. You know, so we, we spend a lot of time saying this isn't about Bain. It's not this. Well, this stuff does not directly tie. We do not directly tie this to any of our explicit rating, promotion or compensation programs. We think there's lots of indirect benefit you'll get, but we, we constantly trying to reinforce that this is an investment that the firm is trying to make in helping you. And, um, you know, and, and so we're kind of, we're kind of trying to do the best we can to trigger as many neurons as we can on that intrinsic side, and then hope that they get excited and motivated to just at least want to engage in the concepts. And then in the follow on learning part, we're trying to adopt a lot of the stuff from behavioral science around, um, you know, experiential learning opportunities and how do you create 
how do you create the hopefully mostly visible we can get them to be more visible in the day-to-day -day at Bain how do you create more visible feedback channels so that when people do some of this stuff it's it's actually recognized and they get that positive feedback loop going that which is then what creates that experiential hopefully the yeah you positive the experiential learning so I would say thinking a lot about intrinsic motivation trying to create um, experiential learning and trying to be as varied and just sort of interesting and fun and cool as we can in the um, the various touch points that we that we can do. Yeah, you, you, so those are the three. That, you know that recognition or that feedback loop and getting that dopamine release and various different things. But it also sounds very much right. like you're having people explore their their self identity uh, and the self schemas that they have about themselves, and then tapping into, you know, are are your behaviors reflective of those and what are those behaviors that you need to be have more visible as you said or more ex explicit out in in your work environment and sometimes i think people feel like they can't necessarily share their authentic self because of whatever the you know the 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 history that we have of of our of our journey in life of saying oh well you you need to keep that part of yourself you know Leaders aren't humble, right? Leaders, right, need right. And you can, in, in what you're saying, <laughs> leaders. Yeah. So, so I think there's a lot. Of, leaders are more complex, and, and there's a, there's a component of that that is saying, let's allow this element of your self identity and these self schemas that you have in these various different components to be to actually flourish and and allow that to happen and through this experiential component of getting people to practice and and do that. I think that's a it's, it's a nice model that really allows, I think, a more genuine approach to this than you're not learning these are the five steps to be an effective leader. Yeah, you know? yeah, it's, it's way more complex than that, which is super cool as far as I'm concerned. This, is, this has really been a great conversation, Mark. I'm really, really glad that we've been able to record this and share this with our listeners. Yeah. Um, and we need to talk more about how we can integrate behavioral sciences into your, uh, your yes. model. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Well, we should definitely have a, 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 a whiteboard session on that for sure. Yeah, so, there we go. We'll have, to, we'll have to work out how that goes. One of, one of my rocks is co-creation, so I, I'm an easy sell. There you go. <laughs> oh, man, love that. Love that. You were, we're, we're on the same page. Uh, but before we go, we have to yeah. talk about my favorite subject, which is music. Yes. Now, now, yeah, yeah. Kurt, Kurt said you won't have to actually sing your favorite song, but I was thinking maybe we should try it. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. So. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for sparing me that or sparing your listeners. Yeah. So, so one of the things that we, you know, behavioral grooves, we have this groove component grooves in records and, and as Tim always mm. asked, so if there was a, a song or a, a genre of music that is reflective of you as an individual or, something what would you how would you describe your musical inspiration as we we talk about here we're talking inspirational leadership what's your inspirational music well uh, i actually my very 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 favorite song of all time is uh celluloid heroes by the kinks oh yes wow um i don't know if you're familiar with with that particular song but uh, that that song and 
you know, songs that are have that same idea in them, but that one in particular has just uh, resonate, resonated with me ever since I first heard it back in my high school days in the uh, in the 70s. And, you know, for those for those for, if you know what that if you know that song, it's kind of a, a, on the surface, it's about Hollywood and yeah. the fleeting the fle fleetingness. That's a word of fame and fortune and and so forth. But the theme that I pull, that I always took out of it was this idea, there's a line in there even that everybody's a, everybody's a hero and everybody's a star. Yeah. And, um, and, you know, for me, the takeaway was we all have within us the ability to be and do something great. And the key is actually not to focus on you know, what I'm going to get from John Q. Public or, you know, the, the, the vagaries of fame, but think about and, and be who you are, be authentic. And, you know, it's in there somewhere, but you, you know, you, you may have to go look for it, find it. Yeah. There's, there was a line, the, uh, if you covered him with garbage, George Sanders would still have style. This, this exactly sort of this this self-effacing or, or, or self-fulfilling uh, element of just be who you are and and you'll you'll penetrate through whatever uh you know immediate circumstances you're in is it, exactly pretty, yeah 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 so I've, I've always loved that song and and uh i listen to it all the time well, <laughs> that's terrific well mark thank you so much for your time this has been fascinating i am uh hopefully we can uh our listeners will think so as well uh we'll link to uh in the in the show notes we'll link to the the bain model it's up on you know bain's website there and so we'll, we'll link to that so people can actually uh, look at the pdf of that and kind of understand a little bit better as as we're talking through it so uh, with that, though, thank you, and we, we appreciate it. Welcome to our grooving session, where Tim and I groove on what we learned from our Behavioral Grooves interview, have a free-flowing discussion on some of those topics, and whatever else comes into our shiny little heads, or I guess my head is the only so shiny little head. Yours <laughs> isn't so shiny and maybe not so little. And what if the conversation wasn't free-flowing? What would that be like? What if it was jagged? <laughs> then we would probably lose many of our listeners. <laughs> so Tim, what were you what what was the key pieces of information that you found absolutely fascinating with Mark's conversation? To go from visual and environmental studies and be really committed to it. You know, Mark Mark was not in school to be around bagger. You know, he yeah. was there. He was he was very committed to this and I think about the um about and we even talked about this the Buckminster Fuller comment about don't change the man change the environment yeah uh, you know and and I think that that was just fascinating how um, he took that and really started to to look at how environment impacts management impacts our culture uh, the, the the corporate culture impacts leadership well and I think it's interesting to to that note is having that broader perspective and not having necessarily a specific business degree. And then he talked about when he did meet Bill Bain, you know, the founder of Bain, uh, and, and he said, what was it? Something along like, you're the first person I've interviewed who actually seems to understand what I'm talking about and what we're doing yeah, here. Yeah. Because of that 
breadth of of education that I got. I think that helped. Obviously, you know, Mark is a very bright guy and and can capture things uh, on the moment. But I think that that diversity and background is an interesting component. And it's yeah. one of those things I think maybe education today. You know, we tend to focus in on what are we going to do. You got to pick your major in order to get your job, right? And and what is it that that's driving that? When why can't we have a more, you know, egalitarian, uh, you know, humanities component? Well, this this is a big question, right? I mean, this is this has been on <laughs> this has been on our minds here recently. We we've talked about this, but there is this uh, there is that question of. Do, uh, are people going to business school for the specific utility of, of a certain value, uh, monetary value, once they graduate? Like yes. Starting salary being the, the key measure. And so uh, with uh, accounting degrees and engineering degrees or um, uh, maybe maybe even economic degrees, there might be some straight line. But what about a marketing degree or what about a liberal arts degree? Yes. Uh, how do we measure the utility? Or if, if our measure is economic utility, how are we going to measure that? Well, and, and is economic utility the right measure? Should we be looking at overall life satisfaction? And how do you measure yeah. overall life satisfaction? And you left out psychology. How could you leave okay. out psychology? Come on. Because I was a marketing major. I was not a psychology major. I did a marketing MBA. That was my MBA. Come on. We got all of that. Well, in, Mark even talked about that when he talked about um, cross-functional activities and cross-company activities and, and the need to kind of break away from these silos. And I thought that that was an important um, an important thing to remind us of that we solve problems most effectively when we, when we have diverse viewpoints in the room. Yeah. Right. And and the, as companies get more siloed, get larger, and get more siloed, we lose that cross-functional, cross-company effect of having lots of ideas come in to influence our decision making. It, it reminds me of the conversation we had with James Heyman in his podcast, where he was talking about the. You don't have departments based around solving a question. You have departments around certain functional areas. And wouldn't it be great if you had an entire you know, group of people from marketing, from economics, from sociology, from psychology, who are all looking at how judgments are made yeah. uh, as opposed to, oh, no, that's an economics, you know, uh, perspective or economics is looking at it from one perspective psychology is looking at it from another sociology is looking at it from another and marketing is looking at it from a fourth way and they're all different and they don't have any of the overlap that you could get some of that synergy and some of the insights from and those insights only come when you bring these different fields together yeah. these different expertise so at once we have to have the call is for uh, individual expertise, but to be at the table with people with a variety of different expertises, right? And being open to listening and hearing and uh, building off of those synergies. Yeah. So, okay, so what about emotional utility, Kern? How about that? 
Was, I know there's no segue there, right? I'm sorry. Wasn't that was from a podcast a, a long time ago, wasn't it? Or maybe well, just a week ago. I don't know. Yeah, but yeah. yeah, emotional utility is one of those functions that we could look at from the perspective of of what you're trying to maximize um, right. in, in a career choice in your college education. I think there's something to be said there. So. One of the things that I found to take us back into an actual <laughs> grooving session about some of the topics we talked about was the the methodology that Mark used in the, looking at leadership, right? It was... The and, development and, of, of, of the, the Bain model. The development of the model and using... And he brought up the fact that Bain has a very quantitative make sure I say that right, approach to these things, yeah. right? And so it's not the soft fuzzy, although that, that's important, but you need to be able to quantify that and, and to put some components around that. So when they're looking at that retention and engagement uh, and seeing that what was used to work and, and now it's not and trying to figure that out, they took a very analytical approach to it, which is very much like what we do in research and you're looking at trying to identify the root causes of things and not just necessarily correlations and not just understanding well hey there's these two factors that show up together all the time therefore you know that's going to be one's going to cause the other you really need to understand what is causing it? What are those factors? So, more data can help that. More data can yeah, help better that. Better data can help that. And, and looking at it in a rigorous way, looking at it in a way that you test your hypothesis, right? You have hypothesis out there. You test that. You look to see if, if the hypothesis stands the test of the scrutiny of the data and the analysis around it. And then from there, you you make adjustments. And that's what the process that they use. Yeah. I, uh, on a similar note, I was happy to come across a paper this morning, that uh, an academic paper, that tested a hypothesis and found there was really the, uh, only the weakest of correlation between what they were trying to, to prove. I'm not going to, you know, I don't want to throw anybody under the bus because... Academics like to say, "Well, I found something, and this is what I found, and it's a robust effect." You know, they're always talking about the robust effect. But with, unless you actually have some tests that fail, or or to go back to, I, I'm not, I should move away from the fail. We have some learnings. <laughs> we have some learning opportunities. Yes, from, we do. We have learning opportunities when we discover that things don't go as expected. Well, you know, I just want to let you know that if you ever want another one of those to read, you can read my dissertation. Oh. There you go. <laughs> my hypothesis was totally, uh, yeah, was not confirmed. So, um, Okay. Well, with that. With that, another interesting part that I thought about from this this conversation with Mark uh, was one line that he said where they were looking at the components of, of in the past of how they were training and uh, looking at leadership and 99% of that was based on performance and only 1% was everything else. And everything he, else. Yeah, and he said, you know, it's a big light bulb for me. No wonder we have people, quote, unquote, starting to feel uncomfortable um, because 
it's not all about performance, right? Yeah. Performance is a part, which he mentions, right? Yeah. Performance is a big part. You can't forget about that from a leadership aspect. And even at that, there is no silver bullet. No. Right. Right. But it's more than just leadership. It's more than just the performance aspect of it. And I think too many companies, I've worked with too many companies. We look at this from sales incentives. We look at this in a variety of other ways. Employee engagement. Employee engagement. And what is being measured is a performance measure, which is an output-based measure. Mm -hmm. Yes, that's important. Absolutely. However... There are inputs into that that drive a significant amount of that output performance. And without those inputs and making sure that those inputs are being done right, you're missing some very important pieces. And I think that's something that Mark and his team found and yeah. really identified. Well, the stuff that's left on the sidelines, that are that the elements that are not fully considered or weighed, sort of become externalities that still have an effect on the result. Yeah. So just because we're not uh, carefully paying attention to them and integrating them into the models doesn't mean they're not having an effect. That's true. The better the better models, kind of getting back to the data driven, uh, the quantitative side of this, the more the more data that we can have in these um, in these in these models hopefully the more effective they'll be. And what I liked about Mark is that they're continuing to add data from new people coming in and taking their assessments and various different things, and they're continuing to look at the model. So yeah. I think it's only going to improve over time. Peter Drucker and his management model, what did you think of Mark's response to that? Well, it um, it did surprise me, actually, yeah. a, a little bit. Um, he, he was very inclusive about it, uh, even though he's in the business of saying, the new model that I just created is the new model. Yeah, this is this is kind of the definitive thing. But you know, he, he uh, Mark acknowledged that there are behavioral aspects of what Drucker was focused on that are still alive and well and should be considered. Yeah, I think that's very interesting. It was, and, and to a degree, there's components of that, right? Where depending upon what part of the model you're looking at. And, and how you interpret that from a Peter Drucker perspective, right? There are parts of that that still go into that performance part of the, the overall equation. Uh, it's just this factor of saying it's not the, the end-all, be-all of it. And I, yeah. I think that was very apparent and I think very appropriate. So, all right. You want to talk some music? I would love to talk some music. What do you want to talk about music? Well, I was thinking about, you know, uh, the kinks don't come up a lot in conversation. The ki- What do you mean the kinks don't come up just, in a lot of conversation? Just, the kinks are one of the seminal bands truly, from that era. Truly, truly. So I, I have just a personal reflection to make on on the kinks. And and I'm, I'm, uh, I'm a fan uh, going way back. But when I heard the song Lola... Mm-hmm. And to hear it was about this this guy, this cross-dressing guy, what an amazing topic to write a song about. When uh, was that? That was... Early 1970s. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm betting this was 1970, maybe 71, yeah. somewhere in there. Um, if you if you know someone else is faster at Google than we are, and uh, someone somebody should send us a note uh, on that, <laughs> but um, to to make sure that we, we get that in the in the notes. But uh, 
you know, I, I, it's one of the things that I, that I really love about music is is pushing, kind of sometimes pushing the boundaries. And um, at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, uh, recently there were, there were there were some really great inductees. Nina Simone was among them, oh. and she's a woman who, as a tremendously talented uh, and highly trained uh, pianist and songwriter, you know, wrote songs that kind of pushed the the political. Uh, and social boundaries of of her time in a way that was provocative, uh, but done in brilliant music. And so, um, so if, if you're not familiar with Nina Simone, I just want to direct you to check it out. And if you haven't heard "Lola" by the Kinks, by God, do yourself a favor and <laughs> dial it up on YouTube because it's it's a great tune. Lola, 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 Lola. Okay. Yeah. How about and, you, Kurt? And uh, you know, yeah. So it was. Uh, I'm looking it up. Oh, on, you're looking at Wikipedia in 1970. 1970. Yeah, okay. the Kinks debuted Lola, uh, an account of a confused. According to Wikipedia, an account of a confused romantic encounter with a transvestite that became both a UK and US top ten hit. Um, the lyrics originally contained the word Coca-Cola, and as a result, the BBC refused to broadcast the song, considering it to be in violation of their policy against product placement. Oh, snap! So they changed it to Cherry Cola. Yes. What other famous rock song had that happen? Had, had the same kind of... Uh, pro- I, I'm not... The Rolling Stones? With what? Isn't it The Rolling Stones? Now I'm saying it, and I might be wrong. Uh, where he talks about uh, uh, cherry cola. Um, man, I thought for sure you would know this, and now I'm drawing a blank. Anyway, let's move oh, on. Oh, got to move on. <laughs> Quick. All right. And with that, I think I just ruined my entire musical component. So that was... Uh, okay, well, that's good enough. That was good enough. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, thank you, folks. <laughs> for listening in again. Yeah, and, and sorry this ending was a little mixed up and, and groovy. If we research whatever we just talked about, and we'll put it in the show notes. And just one little thing. We don't have any listeners in Saudi Arabia. So if you know anybody in Saudi Arabia, would you just give them a little nudge and... You know, ask him to to start signing up because that's that's one of the places uh, that's just not lit up on the map. So, you know, FYI. All right. <laughs> yeah. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for listening. Yeah.